Hey, welcome everyone to the Reflex Blue Show. I'm your host, Donovan Beery, and I have with me design legend, AIGA, former AIGA national president, AIGA medalist, Clement Mock. Clement, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Can't complain. Nice weather here in Palm Springs, Southern California. Missed all of the uh, crazy rain that uh, LA got, and we've gotten a a good dose of that, but not nearly as bad as Palm Springs. As you can see, it's wonderful back behind me right now, so can't complain. <laughs> well, I'm in Omaha, so it's actually blue skies, but you know we get a lot of just gray and boredom here. But but it's it's pretty lovely out today. So, well, good, good, good. Now, Clement, you 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 also just got a, a Cooper Hewitt Design Award. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> It's a strange award in that it's uh, dealing with um, for for honoring my work in digital media, and I've been away from that for so long. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in a way, all kind of design awards are kind of strange, you know. But but I mean, we we like them because there's not many. It's one of the rare opportunities where people actually celebrate work and celebrate exactly. design, but. But it, it is kind of strange that they have awards at all sometimes, if you think about it. Well, yeah. I mean, and the fact that digital media, it's like, it, it's so pervasive now. It, it meant a lot more some 15, 20 years ago, probably 20 years ago. But now it's just like digital media is media. So, <laughs> Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So. All right. Well, congratulations on, on getting something 20 years too late, I guess. Better late than never. Better late than never. Yes. And and actually, over the last fifteen years, you've been. It says you've been focusing on sugarfish sushi. So I mean, yeah. I assume you still do some design. Oh yeah, it's I'm dealing with all of their marketing communications and guest experience and managing the brands, working with architects, working with the um, operations of the business and all the. Um, to go part of the business. And then I think over the last 15 years, morphed into other kinds of food services, including pastas and steaks and burgers and what have you. Yeah, so I am in the food business now. It's not a problem to call myself a restaurateur at this point, so. <laughs> what, what, what was it that made you realize that digital media was passed and that food was back in? A couple of things. I, I think over, I mean, I've been involved with digital media for well over uh, almost 20 years, but uh, in mid 2020, I'm um, no, in mid uh, 2000, I was getting further and further away of making things. And most of the stuff that I was involved with were abstractions. Uh, information systems. So I stopped making things. So, so when I finally took some time off in the mid 2000s, I said, you know, what can I really do that gets me back on the path of uh, making things and learning a new thing? Uh, because uh, digital media uh, and even print media at that point were not so much I've been there and done that, but it wasn't, I wasn't on a learning curve on learning new things and, and discovering new things. So I think that sort of um, 
that was one of the motivation. And so the joy of discovering and learning, um, I found that in cooking, learning how to cook. So the joy of um, just the beginner's mind and discovering new tools, new techniques, new way of seeing things. Um, so that began a whole journey in cooking. And then somehow God word, I mean, the word got out that I was into cooking. And so my former colleagues in the tech business decided to start a um, the restaurant business and ask if I would be interested to be involved. And I did a, a short consulting gig, and no sooner than the gig was completed, and he's like, do you want to be part of this restaurant startup? And then here I am 50, some 15 years later, uh, almost 39 restaurants. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite a few restaurants. So I have a very unique view in that world. It's a combination of brands and marketing and technology and you know in, in light of what has happened with food tech in the last even the last five years with the COVID shutdown and all the pivots to takeouts and all the different services that supports that and Snapchats and you know everyone taking pictures of their food <laughs> and that was just a phenomenon that you don't see some 15 20 years ago so here we are was having a background in technology and graphic design was that helpful like the design mindset to what you've been doing with food or how did you how did that naturally work into it no different than any uh, in any sectors in any design projects that I've approached the year uh, over the years is really looking at how to edit and really it's like yeah there's just lots of things on the menu there's lots of way to present the food but how do we convey and communicate qualities about the food or qualities about the experience and quality about dining in so editing and eliminating the noise was were um some of the guiding principle you know uh uh, make it simpler and I think there there is a trend in general with food uh, the food industry the menus are getting smaller people in the whole trend of uh, not a, a menu that looks like a bible <laughs> but right. basically have a menu that you uh, a restaurant can actually make solid good food and people come back over and over again so that trend is, is, I mean, is it is actually a design trend in, in the restaurant business. So I think my background in design also helped in, in trying to figure out how best to present the food, uh, how best to communicate a very simple menu. Um, and that's true of the uh, all the restaurants concept that I've been involved with over the years. So. Yeah, and which which uh which is your favorite restaurant that you've done? Like, is is it is there a personal preference, or is it based on the type of food, or like you just like the daily special? Are we talking about the uh, the sushi business, the pasta business, and any of them? Like, like what was it that like what do you what do you what do you like the most right now? Like, we're right at lunchtime, so I'm thinking like what what do I need to make here? You know, I mean, I think I got I think I got a, some carnitas I'm cooking here in the in the slow uh, cooker. Right. I don't know. 
you know, I got to start oh, no. planning for tomorrow too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, like with anything else, the whim of the day. And I think sometimes it is a small, simple hand row, but then at some point, you know, I didn't have a big breakfast. I would really go for a, a grass-fed Waku burger, um, classic burger uh, with American cheese, but, you know, it's just full-on <laughs> uh, burger. But then, you know, it's like, how can you do that? It's not healthy. Uh, but you know, this whole issue of grass-fed uh, beef, I do think it tastes different. It, it, it is a better, uh, you can eat that food more often because it has the healthier fats and all of that. So I don't feel guilty for indulging on a burger during lunch. And then for dinner, I mean, there's, you know, good sushi. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it, it's, for me, it's all over the map. And I think it is about um, indulging on quality food. And that's... Right. And I assume part of the limited menu is based so that you can get you can get quality food. You don't have to stock every single meat in the kitchen and, and you can change to the daily specials quicker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think we have a limited menu in, in the sense that we stock things that we can really produce really well and not try to please everybody all the time. You know, we, we try to do our best, but we don't um, stock every combination possible. And, and I think over the course, our guests do know what we provide. And uh, you know, we can't offer a vegetarian meal in a, um, in a burger shop. Uh, burger restaurants and we don't so. where do you send people to to find your restaurants or to to look into them or does each one have its own website or is there an overall thing where they can just say like hey go here and these are clements 37 oh, no. or whatever it was and, and they're all separate but they're sister restaurants on um, some restaurant the sushi restaurants uh, we have those three different concepts the sugar fish which is a dine-in for lunch and dinner which is just a full range of different kinds of uh, preset menus. And, and those restaurants do have the cross references. Um, then we have another sushi uh, group of restaurants that serve only hand rows. So these are, um, there's a counter and you just sit there and you can specify whatever uh, hand rows that you want. So, so, so all of these do have cross links, but, um, but the pasta restaurants and the uh, burger restaurants and the steak restaurants uh, are independent. So yeah, it, it is all through Yelp and Google search and good SEO. <laughs> right. I guess yeah. that's where the technology still plays in, right? Oh yeah. Directly. Yeah. yeah. And that's really been uh, leverage my history in that space. And that's where I actually do a lot of the design and planning and um, dealing with data. And in this day and age, I think right now with AI, it, it's gonna change all of that pretty soon. So yeah, it's, it's a whole new world and have to completely rethink design in that space moving forward. Yeah. Well, we're gonna be right back with Clement Ma. Well, Clement, I, I wanna say one of the things is You've always been kind of at the forefront of a lot of the technological movements of, of our field. You were there right at the beginning of the computer revolution. 
you you moved into stock photography. Now you're revolutionizing food. Was this something that you envisioned? I mean, obviously, I assume you trained with the old school, you know, yeah, Ru Ruby Lith, whatever, cutting everything out by hand. A lot of, I you know, our last guest, we were just talking about all the rubber cement inhalation yes. that that oh, uh, yeah. our profession used to do. Uh huh. Yeah. Was it? Was it? Was what drew you into the? Oh, I I need to move you know, into the computer area and not just stay on the the thing and, and stay at the forefront of all technology, even today. Yeah, it's, it's, no. it's, it's amazing looking at how much you, you, you are still like a step ahead of, I mean, we should just look at what you're doing and follow that. Okay. All right. Sure. Uh, if I could bottle that and sell it, that would be great. I think a lot of it has to do with how I initially got into design at a very early age in my teens in high school. My introduction to design was actually in a uh, graphic uh, workshop. Uh, high school back then had auto shop and wood shop, but in this high school that I went to, it had a print shop. So uh, the instructor there I mean, this was pretty much vocational training. It really wasn't about design, but uh, I learned how to run a letterpress doing silkscreen printing and uh, doing uh, running a uh, litho offset press, you know, a, a small AB Dick one color press. So I was learning, um, I learned design through technology from the get go really early on in um, 15, 16 years old. So, and it wasn't until mid, right into my junior year that I realized, oh, there's this thing called design. And guess what? I actually know how to make things and produce things. Although, you know, whereas most people were just figuring how to do sketches, I was just like, oh, if I could, if there's a sketch, I can, I know how to produce it. So I think I entered design through the back door in that regard. So when I went to school, you know, I, I mean, at, at that point, I knew Rubyleth, how to do photo type typography, did a lot of that uh, going through uh, college, design school. So when the computer piece came along, I dove right, in a, right into understanding the tool, uh, figuring out the limitation of the uh, medium itself. That's how I see the world, you know, when there are new things coming up on the horizon, learn how to use it, and then figure out the constraints, the limitations, and, um, and, and in a strange way, I think that curiosity has gotten me into domain and fields that uh, somewhat ahead of its time. I also do think that I was in the right place at the right time and realized that <laughs> there's an opportunity there. So. Yeah, it helps when you're in the right place at the right time too. You do make your own luck, but sometimes some of it there there is there is that aspect of it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to. I mean, some people you know at the right place at the right time and don't realize that there's an opportunity there. But I think the makeup of me having a print background and getting in and sort of realizing that unless you you know how to produce it, it doesn't make any sense. What got you into Apple originally then? Um, fluke. <laughs> um, I came out, uh, I was at, working in New York, 
for Donovan and Green, a traditional design firm in the sense that they, well, traditional in the sense that they were doing print graphics, but also exhibit designs and uh, involved with um, signage. So more rounded in the sense of a um, design firm. Uh, so I came out on a um, summer vacation. At the end of the summer, I came out to see my friends in San Francisco. And it just seems like they basically said, hey, we have this friend that just left Landor and he's um, starting up a design department in Silicon Valley. And I was like, what's Silicon Valley? Sure, sure. <laughs> this was 1982. So I said, okay. So they, you know, Commodore, Atari, Apple, they're all the same to me. And I'm just, you know, I, I'm a high school math flunky. So that's like computer is just a big deal, but I'm, I'm interested in video games and Pac-Man and all of that stuff. Isn't that where Silicon Valley, isn't that where all the games come from? And say, yeah, just go check. Go check in and um, see Tom Suter, uh, and I said okay. So I went down, saw Tom, uh, met with Tom Suter. I basically went there just with no expectations, and within half an hour, I said, "Hey, Tom, I'm Clement, and I'm working at New York. These are the things I work on." I had a couple of slides with me at the time. I didn't have a phone or an iPad to show my portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that that would come later. Yeah, right, exactly. So I just happened to have a couple slides with me, and um, as it turns out, within half an hour, I got a job offer, and I'm just going, no, and I, I'm I'm not interested in moving to Cupertino. So no, thank you, Tom. Um, so I went back to New York, and I told one of my friends, I'm like, one of the strangest thing that had happened, I just got an offer from this company called Apple. And then my friend said, wait, who, who is this? What, what is this? And, I, and my friend said, I think that, uh, well, and by the way, the, the, the job offer was also to work on the Macintosh project. And I said, I, I, I couldn't care less if it was a Commodore 64 or Macintosh. I, I had no idea what that was. So my friend said, no, I think he's on the front cover of Time Magazine. <laughs> oh, yeah, you should probably look into that. Oh, yeah. And I said, huh? Okay. So I looked into <laughs> that. So I get a chance to work with Steve Jobs as Wonderkin. And I think, okay, that's, that's interesting. So I called Tom Suter back and say, hey, Tom, that offer that you said to work on a Macintosh, is that with Steve Jobs? And he said, yeah. <laughs> So I said, all right, okay, amuse me. And is that offer still holding? And I say, yeah, absolutely. So that begat the journey to Apple back in late in 1982. He's uh, I I like, yeah, the offer's still good. So, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, and Steve wouldn't have been wearing his black uh, uniform oh, no, before every no, day. He'd, no. he'd wear different, you know, different clothes. That, that, that alone had to be weird. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was in his Ralph Lauren polo face. He was wearing a lot of Ralph Lauren uh, shirts and yeah, and jeans at that point at that, at that time. So yeah, 
a very different uh, Apple at the time. I think when I got there, the campus, Apple campus, was on, were mixed in with some farms on, on the, the campus. Uh, Santa Clara at that point, and, you know, in the early 70s, late 60s, it was still orchard uh, neighborhood. But in the course of the 10 years, uh, well, you know, not even 10 years, in about uh, six, seven years period, many of the orchards were sewed off into office parks, of which Apple moved into one of those areas, and there were still orchards and farms around. So uh, it, was, it was weird moving from New York City and then showing up at Apple campus and um, the Apple building was just right next door to a little uh, mom and pop farm. So, yeah. And, and, and it was obviously a much smaller company then. I mean, how, how, yeah. big was the, how big was the entire design and creative team? Well, when I joined, the, the design team was growing uh, as they were launching and putting a team together for Lisa. So Tom Suda got there uh, and built up the team. And I think the design team was no more than about 20 people. And it was doing design work for Apple IIs and Apple Threes and Lisa and then the soon-to-be Macintosh. So yeah, the, the department was no more than 20 people. And uh, all of Apple worldwide was about 1,500 people. Oh, geez. Yeah, it's a different world. Very different world. Uh, yeah, so it, um, yeah. So, and then I, there was a major growth phase during the early 80s all the way till um, uh, the mid, uh, and Steve Jobs uh, left the company in 85. But at that point, it was still about two a little over 2,000 people. It wasn't that, uh, that large of a company. It just feels and feels bigger as a company. I was kind of wondering that because sometimes we work on projects and obviously you left and, and there's something nice that they kept the Macintosh name around, obviously for you, because it helps to say like I did the launch where if they would have changed the name and it was a different computer but it's weird that that sometimes those things you can attach your name to it or, or your name gets attached to it. But as the years go by, you have no control over if yeah. it if it becomes more successful or if it becomes an Enron. You know, you yeah. Paul Rand's got that Enron logo, which doesn't look as good anymore as when he did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's um it's a funny thing that um you get attached to various projects and then over the years some stick and some don't. And you know, I, I um I was involved in designing the Mirage Hotel logo in Las Vegas and and Steve Wynn has certainly have uh, has its own brand associated with um Las Vegas. So be it good or bad, that sort of Depends where and who you talk to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, some products have, um, you know, stayed true to its core uh, as to what, um, so some products as well as company, they have stayed true to its goals and missions and values. So as much as Apple has evolved and has had different Guardians and caretakers, um, the mission of the business uh, lives on. So, yeah. All right. Well, that was that was a that was a well spent half hour interview there. I assume. 
Yeah, it was very well. Yeah, I think it, it had certainly has changed my life because I think I did my um, post-grad design study at Apple. I've learned a lot about how to design, not only about the products, but also, you know, besides brands and design communications, but about products and really looking at designing the whole business itself. Uh, and how you deal with vendors, how you communicate with the press, and how um, and this whole the cult of app, uh, the Mac, and how it tr has a trickle effect, uh, and how it creates halo effect to the master brand of Apple. So, in a lot of ways, uh, the core of core values of Mac has permeated and influenced the uh, core value the core values of Apple, so. Well, we're gonna be right back with Clement Muck. <laughs> All right, welcome back, Clement. Actually, my, my, uh, my, you're, you're the second Clement I think I've met. My, my grandpa's name was what? Clement. That's how I knew how to pronounce it. My, it was- Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not a very common name. And I think, um, who was it that sort of, it was Stephen Freckholm, but he's like, and when I first met uh, Stephen, it's like, boy, you know, these single named um, designers are really getting around. There's Ivan and Milton and April, you know, and there's now Clement. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I'm in great company. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my uh, nephew, his middle name is Clement because my sister named him after, you know, grandpa. So, ah, okay. Kind right. of but but I'll tell you it's named after you. You know, I should I okay. should have started right. I should have started with that instead. It's probably yeah. a better lie yeah. rather than telling the yeah. truth. Yeah. So so if someone's coming out of school right now or they're looking to to chase what's hot right now, is mm -hmm. it is it like what do you see on the trends? Because obviously you're mm -hmm. you're still up on it better than any of us or anyone I've met. Well, I think part of it is you can't help. Uh, notice all the changes when you are next to or right in the epic centers of uh, technological change with uh, in the Silicon Valley and San Francisco. Uh, AI being one of them, the health tech is another. Uh, you know, everything that used to be tech is now AI and you just go, no, it's just some really smart processor. And then everyone decides to call it AI. It used to be called big data and now it's called AI. So it's all of the above. Those things will and had and will continue and it will continue to affect and change what we design, how we design. And, and I think like other things in the past, certain professions and practice will, will die and will go away. I mean, just as typesetters are gone, Designers all of a sudden found are finding uh, that they have to do typesetting, and I forget there used to be someone that would have done that part of my job for me. Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> and doing production work. All of a sudden, you go, "All right, so who's going to do production when your tool is also eighty percent or seventy-five percent there in production? So you can't be sloppy anymore. <laughs> so you." You have to do these files and it's got to be so exact. So all of a sudden productions have actually gone back to the designer and doing production work. 
because I used to, I, I mean, I, I did production work when I started into mechanicals with ruby lifts and all the different overlays. So I was doing productions and here I am some 40 years later, still doing production work. Oh yeah, I, I, I bet you were cutting ruby lifts and being like, soon I won't have to do this part of the job. And then you're like, nope, exactly. yeah, still doing the job. Still doing the job. So I think what's, what's scary and that it is a concern is that the craft of design is, um, the craft itself is being undermined with AI technologies. So the craft is about how to prompt really well, how to tell the computer to, to look, for, you know, create images, AI generation of images. And when you don't really know and have not done the, foundations of topography and drawing and, photo and uh, photography and learning what is correct lighting. You don't know if, if what's being generated is, is correct. You just rely on the computer to say, this is a good rendering of, of the idea that's in your head. But if you really don't know your craft and the core basic tenets, you get lazy or the folks coming up um, don't know any better. So things get dumbed down as a result. So I think um, as much as these new technology is making life easier, there is a threat of it dumbing down our craft as design practitioners. Does it matter if technology um, gets better and better in replicating and generating things that looks and feels like it's good enough. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do think that is a problem because the technology do shape and uh, put parameters around what we can create. I do think as a young practitioner coming in, I think you just need to learn a shitload more. <laughs> uh, not only about the craft itself, but what the constraints of the medium. I mean, I remember eons ago when I first was at Apple um, trying to make converts out of designers. I went uh, to Milton Glaser's office and hauled in my Mac, the 16 pound luggable Macintosh and showed uh, Milton the Mac paint program. I say, hey Milton, so you can do a lasso around this image and then you shift command and then drag it over and you could replicate and duplicate this image. And when I looked at Milton's face and it's like, oh my God. So this is a feature of, of the new applications. And I was so proud of it and say, yeah, isn't that cool? And you say, oh my God, um, everything that I find about the, the this new Fandango are just the kind of things that scares me. And, uh, and, I, and, and I said, huh, and I didn't understand that. And this was 1984. So some 20 years later, I met, I was talking to Milton again, and this time as, um, as an adult and say, hey, uh, so Milton, you know, you seem very depressed as to what's going on. And he's like, yeah, you know, all the things that I used to do are no longer relevant. 
Uh, no, all the things that's going on with design, it's just really not what it used to be. And it is a, um, there's no respect for many of the old craft. And, and the thing that stuck with me is that the, the war of the computer uh, is over. They won. What yet to be known are the things that we've lost. And when you look back at what has happened in the last 20 years, um, we've lost a lot. And it's just incremental things. But the going to bookstores, going to the ability to discover things in the real world, uh, we've lost all of that with the, uh, with the advent of the computer and, and the internet. But I do think going back and studying that stuff really, as you said, it, it still makes a difference. Yeah. But I but I mean but I mean we're not gonna pull out Rubylith anytime soon. That's no, 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 it's not that craft, but understanding, I mean how life drawings you learn how to look at muscles and proportions and all of that you're not going to learn that by just looking at ai generated images whether the image is correct or the foreshortening of, of you know rendering is correct or not so as a result i think a lot of the ai technology draws from uh, a limited list of things and i mean many of the generations right now are from 3d computer model many of the uh, renderings look plastic and, um, and th there's no flaws in, in, in the images. <laughs> the yeah. flaws and the irregular components are the things that really makes things unique and human. And I think we're losing that. We don't even see that. And you have tools that would allow you to make your face look better and proof. And you don't have to, to do uh, plastic surgery to make her face look better. You just put a filter and, <laughs> and voila, you have a new improved version of you. So that's... Um, I, yeah, yeah, I was just... Someone I was talking to was was mentioning how a number of their friends put all the filters on every image that they post up of them and their kids and because yeah. they look better. And, and, and the comment was, I think they're going to regret that in 20 years. All their photos won't look like what they should look like. Yeah. And you're going to miss that. And it's, it's those are the imperfections are the things and the irregular component. I mean, the mistakes and all the, the, the irregular elements are the things that makes us, that makes us feel human. And I think by doing these filters and supposedly you know, making things better, it's not. I, I mean, I, and I do believe it's not. So for young practitioners in the design world, it's really a, really looking at what, how to make technology more human. So, and that's, um, I guess, in learning about design and moving into the design profession, that's, uh, you know, how do you learn to become more human and design for humans? And that's really the uh, not yeah so, so that's um, quite philosophical for Friday afternoon. No, that's good. That's good though. I I love hearing this stuff. So I think yeah. you know I really I really do want to thank you for your time. And when when is your next restaurant 
when are you opening up one here in Omaha that I can visit? Uh, or, or, or is there one and I'm feeling like an idiot because I didn't know about it? Uh, no, there. I mean, the, the only restaurants are in Los Angeles and New York. Those are the only places, and I think that has to do with my. Uh, some of it has to do with the sourcing of ingredients, and the, the proximity to um, to ports and uh, frequent frequency of delivery of quality uh, ingredients. I mean, San Francisco doesn't even make that cut. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, so, uh, so Los Angeles and New York are the only two cities right now that we think uh, has the ability to, that we can draw the uh, our various resources for uh, quality goods. Okay, and one one last question. We've got yeah. we've got lined up to talk to Kit Heinrichs next. Do you have any questions yeah. for Kit? Anything you 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 can't ask him because I'll ask I'll ask anything. <laughs> no, I, Kit is a good, good friend over the years. I mean, we, he and I have we're both on the art center boards, and yeah, I mean, I I uh, I was actually about to have dinner with him last month, so I um, remissed and forgot to RSVP. So no, he he and I. Uh, we do chat quite often, so there's nothing <laughs> that I don't uh, dare to ask. So. Uh, well, is there any questions I should ask him that the audience will love to hear? Well, I'm sure you're going to go ask about his flag collections, and uh, yeah, I think I've talked to him about that in the past. He's, I think, I think mainly we're going to talk about he's got his new book and the new standard. Well, he's got so many fetishes in terms of collections. So besides the flags and things about baseball, what other things do you collect? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, we'll have to find out what he's collecting next. Cause I think he was yeah. even collecting like art that was created in the internment camps for oh, World yeah, War yeah, II he, and yeah. stuff. Like, yeah, he's written a, you know, a small little book with uh, Daphne about that. So yeah, so there he's 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 a collector and a pack rat, depending on how you. <laughs> well, well, I should ask you then. Do you have any collections that that we should know about, or is it just you're collecting restaurants? No, um, I used to collect globes. I at one point I had about hundred hundred uh, globes, and that took a lot of space. So over oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, so. And I think I've been paring down on my collection habits uh, I, for a while there. And I still have my um, modern modern Chinese, 20th century Chinese commercial art, as well as contemporary fine arts collection. It's, um, yeah, so that's kind of from capitalistic Shanghai in the 19. 20s and 30s to communist Chinese propaganda posters to late 20th century uh, contemporary Chinese art. So yeah, uh, uh, it's fascinating to see the transitions. From, uh, so yeah, so that's one thing I collect. I figured I figured if we're gonna talk to Kit, we got to about collections. We got to talk to you about what you have. So yeah. all right, all right. Well, all right. Clement, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. The Reflex Blue Show with Donovan Murray is hosted at 36point.com. Music by Dust Lab.